0: church family. Uh, If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, chapter number 5. We've been in a series titled Come and See, and we've been exploring the life of Jesus as documented by the Apostle John. main reason we've been looking at it is because we are also taking in this invitation to come and see Jesus, look at his life, and see how it applies to us Today, I want to say a special thank you to our worship team. Of course, they always do a great job um, every week, but especially this week. uh, Brother Evan is a little under the weather. Um, His family's kind of fighting some sickness and uh, you may not have noticed, but Corey sounded a little stuffy. That's because he's been battling some sickness. I may sound a little stuffy. It's because I've been battling some sickness and now it's made its rotation uh, through Brother Evan. And I don't know if Miss Courtney has experienced it yet. It may be finding its way to her as well. And so our staff Has been battling uh, just a little bit of sickness these past couple of weeks, and so uh, be praying for Brother Evan and his family. You know, Thanksgiving around the corner, want to get them healthy and make sure they get to spend time uh, with their family. But our worship team, as always, did a wonderful job, and uh, even Bryson this morning in 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 the redo there, it just made me think um, how thankful I am that my worship's not always perfect. I don't always get everything right, uh, but the Lord uh, still receives it. Aren't you glad uh, that He gives us do overs? (laughs) and a chance to start again. So, man, I'm thankful for them and uh, how the Lord has used them. So anyway, uh, listen, we're going to jump into John chapter 5. But before we do, I want to give a little uh, quick recap um, to all the things that we've looked at uh, in uh, John chapter number 5. So if you remember... In the beginning of this chapter, and of course uh, you do remember because you remember everything that your pastor says, and so I know you already remember uh, this recap, but uh, Jesus has left Galilee and he has gone back to Jerusalem to celebrate what John writes is a feast of the Jews. And we don't know exactly what feast it is, but we do know there's a lot of people around and Jesus has come to town to celebrate uh, with his fellow Jews. Now when he got to Jerusalem, he healed a man who had been paralyzed for over 38 Eight years, So he's there for the feast, finds his way to an area where a lot of people were in need of healing, which, by the way, if you want to find Jesus, look for broken people, and that's typically where you will find him. And here he is encountering a man who's been paralyzed, and he heals him. Now, most of us would think that this would lead to celebration. This would lead to rejoicing. However, in John chapter 5, it does not Instead, Jesus is questioned for healing a man on the Sabbath. Now, the problem's not healing the man. Of course, anybody who experiences healing after 38 years of being paralyzed, certainly that's a good thing. So, the problem's not the healing, the problem is when the healing took place. The Jews had written strict laws on what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. That, by the way, is kind of like Sunday for us. Now, remember, these laws aren't what God wrote, but they're what people added to what God wrote. Side note, this is never a good idea to add to God. The goal was to protect the day that God set aside for rest and worship. But instead, it turned into a list of rules that made the Sabbath more of a burden instead of a blessing. Rather than a day to rest and worship, it became a day where you had to work harder than any other day to make sure that you didn't break any of the laws. Now, Jesus knew these man-made traditions about the Sabbath. He knew that he was healing a man on the Sabbath, and he could have healed him at any other time. He could have healed him on a different day. However, Jesus took this opportunity to show the world his authority. He took this opportunity to break a man-made tradition in order to proclaim himself to the Jews and those around uh, this feast in Jerusalem to claim his connection, his authority with God. Now, this is why the Jews in particular got mad. Matter of fact, John tells us that they got mad enough to kill Jesus. Here's what John wrote in chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. This is why they were so upset. By the way, this is the beginning of lots of um, uh, uh, controversy with the religious leaders, lots of conflict that will happen throughout the gospel until ultimately they do get to kill him. Now, last week, our friend, our brother, Jason Williams, he preached about the authority of Jesus. He preached a portion of John chapter 5 where Jesus took the opportunity to teach the Jews to teach us about his authority from God. You remember, he has the authority to accomplish the Father's will. He has the authority to save souls and offer eternal life. He has the authority to judge the living and the dead. In other words, Jesus was proclaiming his messiahship to those who were present. He was describing himself as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. However, even after the healing, even after explaining the authority that God had given him, Jesus has still to plead his case. In fact, here's what Jesus says in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 30. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's already claimed this back in John chapter 5, verse 19. He could do nothing apart from God, and what he was doing was because it was God's will. But look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, this entire scene in John chapter 5 gave me a picture of a trial. Now, not an actual trial in court, not a judge and not a jury, but certainly a trial of public opinion. For the Jewish leaders, for those who are present in this moment, I can only imagine the questions that they are asking of Christ. Who is this Jesus? Why does he claim to be God? Why does he think he can ignore our traditions that have lasted for hundreds of years? Could he be the Messiah that we've been looking for? Well friends listen, Jesus knows their questions better than any of us. He knew what they were asking and he was not surprised by the actions of the religious leaders. So what does Jesus do? Well he once again lets them know his connection with God. He doesn't do anything on his own. In other words, this healing of a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, this uh, action, this healing that was done on the Sabbath, this question that is brought before him with accusations beyond what most of us could handle, all of this was done according to the will of God. And not just according to his will, but with his power and with his authority, because Jesus has both of those. But how can they trust that this was done according to God's will. How could one man break a tradition that stood for hundreds of years? Well, they could trust him because of all that has testified to the authority and the authenticity of Jesus. You see, before he dealt with his authority, now he will deal with his authenticity. Both Jews and Gentiles needed more than one witness for something to be admissible evidence. We know this from the Bible. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Listen to what the law said. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. In this case, they think Jesus has committed an offense. If Jesus alone was the one to bear witness for himself, that was not enough. Here's what Deuteronomy continues to say only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus uses their own standard to prove his authority and his authenticity. He tells them he doesn't bear witness alone, but in fact, there are multiple witnesses. In fact, Jesus is about to give us five witnesses to why he is who he says he is. They may have denied Jesus if he was alone in his claim, but he's not alone. In fact, as I was reading this passage of scripture, it made me think about the old uh, young 14-year-old Danny Boudreaux made me think about a time in my life where I got my first job. Now, it wasn't my actual first job. I had worked for family on different occasions and had been paid in different ways by them. But I consider this to be my first real job because this is the first job where I had hours and a schedule and a, and a paycheck. I worked at a place called the Colonial Inn in Logan, Ohio. You may believe this or not, but I was a waiter It was very difficult waiting on tables as a matter of fact that's why I like to tip waiters and waitresses more than maybe the average person I remember the difficulty of the job now this particular place was a small country restaurant probably not that much different than most of our small country restaurants except for every Sunday afternoon this place had full gospel singing live bands would come in they would take different slots and they would sing full gospel so the hardest shift that you would get in any week that you were put on the schedule was Sunday afternoons. It would start early in the morning, and there would be tons of people there because they wanted to hear the music as well as eat the good food. So when I had a shift on a Sunday, this is pretty much what my schedule looked like. I would get up early, I would make it to Sunday school at First Baptist Logan, Ohio, and then I would skip the morning worship. That's right, I said that. And I would head to work to begin my shift at the restaurant. Soon as church was over, for the Methodists it was always earlier, for the Baptists it was a little bit later. They would all. In to the colonial Inn, where I would be standing there waiting to wait on my tables now my parents typically worked every day of the week except for Sunday and so when I got this job and I began to get many shifts on Sundays I eventually convinced my mom to let me drive myself to work mom you've worked hard all week you've had a lot going on it's early you rest just give me the keys to the car I'll be fine right Her rule was pretty simple, just take the back roads, don't get on the highway, and eventually she gave in and she let me drive myself to work. Now you say, Danny, what's the big deal? I let my kid drive my car whenever they need it most of the time. Well, I was 14 years old. I did not have a permit, I did not have a driver's license, but yet, as you know, moms, how your kids are so wonderful, I convinced her to let me start driving early. Now, as you can imagine, this led to that first morning where I was late for work. Obviously, the quickest way to get to work was to drive on the highway. So, of course, I broke the one rule that I had when mom was letting me drive when I shouldn't have been driving. And I'll never forget, it was the very first time, maybe, I guess I should take that back, we're in church Anyway, I was driving to work, I was late that day, and I was driving my mom's old Dodge Omni. Some of you may remember one of those. As a matter of fact, I drove that thing a lot and it never got above the speed limit, even if I tried. And so I just assumed it couldn't. However, I'd never been on the highway, I I think. And so I'll never forget, I was getting closer to work, I was coming down a big hill, and of course, the hill took me faster than what the car could actually go. And on that glorious Sunday morning, there was a wonderful police officer sitting at the bottom of the hill. And so as soon as I came screaming past the police officer, lights went on and they pulled me over. Well, obviously when the cop pulled me over and asked for my license and registration, A, I didn't know what a registration was, and B, I didn't have a license. So I was pretty much like, officer, I got nothing for you. Yes, I was speeding. There is no argument for me. Yes, I have no driver's license. Well, of course, that led to me uh, being escorted out of the beautiful Dodge Omni that I was driving and waiting on side of the road until my mom came, not only to pick me up, but also to drive the car back home. This was obviously not a good day for me. It did not go well once I got home after this moment. Now, I got a beautiful citation, and I got a court date that I had to go to several months later. By the way, I just wish they would do that the next day because the entire, you know, all of those months, I'm thinking of the worst thing that could possibly ever happen, right? All these scenarios are going through your mind, and most notably, or at least what most people figured would happen, was because I was driving before I had my license, and I got pulled over. By the way, I think you can drive without your license as long as you don't get pulled over. Is that? Anyway, because I got pulled over, I don't know why I said that, sorry, I take that back completely. Because I got pulled over, the thought was I would not be able to receive my license until I was 21 years old. And so that would be the penalty. I wouldn't have a permit. I wouldn't get my license at 16 like every other teenager. Instead, I'd have to wait till I was 21 before I'd be eligible uh, to get my driver's license. And so that's just what I assumed would happen. I went to uh, my court date, and I waited for my turn. And when I stood before the judge, something awesome happened. I was acquitted. I ended up paying for my ticket, I paid for some court fees, and then I left as if nothing had ever happened. Didn't get my no driver's license suspended, didn't have to wait till I was 21, simply walked out. Now you may be thinking, what happened? And so was I. Later, I learned something on why the judge let me off the hook. You see, the judge had received letters from people who knew me. I had teachers who wrote letters on my behalf, I had leaders at my church who wrote letters on my behalf, and all those letters gave testimony to my character. In a sense, they were witnesses to who I was. After hearing from all those different people, the judge decided that they couldn't all be making excuses for me. They couldn't all be making up something that wasn't real. And the judge's eyes, those witnesses proved that I was better than that one mistake. It had to be true. When that moment, I realized that's what witnesses do. They testify to the truth. Witnesses play a huge role in helping determine what actually happened. They play a vital role in finding out the truth. Now, I know for me in my own experiences that this is to be true. We know this to be true in our society with things like court cases and the value of witnesses in a trial. But witnesses were also vital to Jesus. In fact, he establishes multiple witnesses, not only as he fights for his authority, but also for his authenticity, for those who are at this feast who are angry with him about the miracle he does on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, you have your Bible. I want you to look at John chapter five, beginning in verse 32, and I want us to read about the witnesses that Jesus puts before his audience. Here they are, verse 32, after Jesus has just said that if I bear witness alone, my witness will not be true. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord Jesus, will you make your word will you make your word real to us today? Father, will you show us those who testify to you? Will you show us the authority and the authenticity that we learn from those witnesses that you bring out in this text? Will you show us what it means for us to be a witness today, Father, right now, as we spend some time in your word? God, will you show us exactly what you want us to do and how you want us to live? Jesus, right now is your time. We ask that you will move and work and speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Obviously, the importance of a witness is tremendous. I've experienced this in my own life. Obviously, as Jesus is proving his own authority and authenticity, as he is trying to help them understand who he is and why he has come, because they will not believe him or trust him or understand his authority, he decides that he will plead his case by calling five witnesses to the stand. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, let me show you witness number one. That is, in fact, God the Father. The first witness is God. The Father, look back at verse 32. Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. This phrase, there is another, is an interesting phrase. It means another person like Jesus. It means different than us, but the same as him. The word for another means one of a different kind, literally unlike any other. How many of us know someone who is unlike any other? Of course we do. He's talking about God. God is like no other. He's referring to God's witness to his own ministry. As a matter of fact, he'll mention this again later in verse 37, when he said, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. That is the another that is borne witness. He said, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. He's telling them that though the father has borne witness to Jesus, they did not listen, they did not see. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Why does Jesus say they've never heard God's voice? In fact, men like Moses have heard God's voice. Here's what it says in Exodus 33. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Why would Jesus say they've never heard his voice? Well, the reason is because they weren't like Moses. He was one of their most trusted men of God, but yet they weren't like him. Why? Because they reject Jesus, who is the voice of God. They've not heard God's voice. Why does Jesus say they've never seen God's form? In fact, men like Jacob have seen God's form. Here's what we know from Genesis 32. Jacob says it himself. I have seen God face to face. Well, if that's true, someone has seen God, then why does Jesus make this statement? Well, the reason is because they weren't like Jacob, who was one of the fathers of their entire faith. Because they reject Jesus, who is the very image form of God, they've not seen God's form. He is giving them a point of emphasis that because the father has testified to his authority and his authenticity, but they didn't listen to God's testimony. Commentary writer that I loved said this, the primary reference here is God's witness in the hearts of believers. When he talks about another witness, when he talks about God bearing witness to Jesus, he may be implying an internal witness that all of us experience as believers when the Lord calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. For those of you who are Christians, you remember this moment. You remember that conviction. You remember when the Holy Spirit drew you out so that you placed your faith in Jesus. This may be the reference that he's making. Now since these Jewish leaders did not believe in Jesus, they've neither heard God's voice nor seen his form. Both of these verbs are in the perfect form of the verb. This means it speaks of the permanent state of spiritual deafness and blindness in these people. It wasn't that God had not spoken into their heart, it was that they refused to listen or to know that it was God. They claimed to be the official interpreters of God and his word, yet they were in ignorance of both. Therefore, they did not receive the Father's witness about the Son. Listen, God's voice had already been proclaimed to them when Jesus was baptized, when he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. They had had opportunity after opportunity of the Father's testimony to Jesus, yet they never received it. Listen, to prove his case, his authority, his authenticity, Jesus calls on God to be his first witness. But then he calls a second witness, that is John the Baptist. God the Father is the first witness, John the Baptist is the second witness. Here's what Jesus said in verse 33, look back at it. He reminds them, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In other words, he didn't need John to make him the son of God. No, no, no. But I say these things so that you may be saved. That's why John's testimony is important. It's not because John said something, now Jesus is real. No, no, no. Jesus is the Messiah, whether you believe it or not, by the way. The reason that John is a testimony and a witness was not so that Jesus would be validated, but so that people could be saved. By the way, that's true for all of us as Christians. It doesn't matter. Jesus is not the Son of God who saved sinners forever because Danny Boudreaux made that known. That's not why. My statement really has no authority. I'm only a witness because I've seen it. I've heard it. I'm a witness so that other people can hear and see. I'm a witness so that other people can be saved. That was true for John the Baptist. He says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus is reminding them, by the way, that they sent to John. Jesus didn't tell them to go find John the Baptist. They wanted to know who John the Baptist was. And do you remember what John the Baptist did when they came and questioned him? He didn't say anything about himself. who did he talk about? He talked about Jesus. Everything he did was to be a witness to Jesus. In fact, here's what John told them when they were wondering who he was. He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Later, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. You know what he said? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what happens a little bit later? When John's with his disciples and Jesus comes again, he tells his own disciples to stop following him and to follow Jesus. Why? Because he was a lamp that was burning. He was a light that was pointing to Jesus. Listen, a lamp provides guidance and direction. It's not the destination. It's not the center of attention. The lamp simply illuminates the way to something else. It serves a greater purpose. And then by the way, it eventually burns out to be replaced by another light. Friends, we are also a lamp for Jesus. We also have been called a light. Remember what Jesus said about those who follow him in Matthew chapter 5? Here's what he said. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Listen to this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. John the Baptist was a witness. All he wanted to do was testify about the one that was coming, about Jesus, who they needed to see, who they needed to know. Friends, this is true for us. Are we a witness? Could we be on the stand to testify to Jesus? Would he want us To be on the stand. Listen, Jesus brought God the Father to the stand. He brought John the Baptist to the stand. He would bring more witnesses to the stand to testify to his authority and authenticity. Look at the third witness. It's Jesus' works. That's the third witness that he highlights. Look back at verse 36 but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works of Jesus bear witness to his authority. His goal was to do God's will. This is witnessed by John the Baptist and even more so by the works of Jesus. He can How can he do what he's doing without God's authority? How can he do all these miracles and all these signs without God being the one who works in him? As a matter of fact, even one of their own leaders told Jesus that they knew he was someone special because of his works. Listen to what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3. He said, Rabbi, Jesus... We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They knew this was not a mystery. Their questions were much deeper rooted in their own selfishness and ambition. They knew there had to be something special about Jesus, yet they would not receive the testimony of his authority and his authenticity. Listen, just in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine sign. A little bit later in John chapter 2, his signs couldn't even be named. They were just mentioned as people seeing all the signs that he was doing. In John chapter 4, he heals an official's son who's sick. In John chapter 5, he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. But can I tell you something else? If you were to take a large picture of the gospel messages and put them in a timeline, you would discover several other miracles and signs that happened before this guy who had been paralyzed for 38 years had ever been healed. As a matter of fact, Jesus cast a demon at out of a man. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and others who were demon-possessed and sick. He heals a man of leprosy. He heals a man that's been paralyzed. He's done numerous miracles and signs. His works are noted. And listen, friends, in their, in their day and really in ours, miracles had been, a, had been long accepted as God's stamp of approval on the message of the one doing the miracles. And Jesus had done plenty of signs and miracles, yet his message was still rejected. It's a picture of the heart of those who are listening. Listen to this from Herschel Hobbes. He said, but none is so blind as those who will not to see. Listen, not those who will not see. He says, but those who will not to see. They've made it their goal, their mission, their desire not to trust in the work of Jesus, even though God has testified to it, even though John the Baptist has been a witness, even though the very works of Jesus could not be denied. Fourthly, listen, there's another witness. It's Scripture. He's like, look, if that's not good enough for you, you may not realize this, but everything that you base your life on from the Bible, it all points to me. Listen to this. This is starting in verse 38. He said, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Listen, these guys were teachers of the Scriptures. More than likely, these religious leaders were Pharisees. They were scribes, which means they've dedicated their lives to studying and teaching the Scriptures. Do you know most of them had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized? Can you imagine memorizing the first five books of the Bible? That is the level of their study of Scripture. Yet Jesus tells them, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. All that time studying, and they still missed Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Here's what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your, your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Yet, even in all their studying, they weren't like Joshua. Here's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Yet all that studying still didn't make them like the psalmist. Jesus was the very word of God, yet they have no time for him. Their, his word was not in them. They missed the most important thing that God has ever tried to show them. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews put it in chapter 1. He said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the universe. Friends, they missed it. In all that study, they missed Jesus. To trust the Bible is to trust in Christ. Listen, John's already given us a picture of the word back in John chapter 1. He wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then a few verses later, he wrote, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet, even in all their study, they missed it. Listen to this commentary writer. What is the primary purpose of Scripture? Is it to record the history of God's dealings with men? Well, it certainly does record such History, but that's not its primary function. Is it to reveal certain truths to men? Although it does reveal truths, this is not its primary function either. The primary purpose of Scripture is to point men and women to Christ. All of what it was meant to do, they missed. They spent all that time studying the Bible but they're mistaken if they think it will give them eternal life. All that time studying the scriptures and reading about Jesus, all that time teaching about the coming Messiah while missing him when he stood right in front of them. No matter how many good things you do, they mean nothing if you miss Jesus. Now, let me help put this in perspective. In many ways, you can boil the teaching of the Old Testament down to two main themes, The first theme is that man is hopelessly rebellious and unable to save himself. From the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, they became captive to sin. Their children were sinners. In fact, one was a murderer. Their grandchildren were sinners. We could read a whole lot about them. Nothing they could ever do would be good enough to save themselves from their sin. Apart from God, they had no hope for rescue. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, have you noticed that even the heroes of the faith are recorded in unflattering terms? Think about Noah. After the ark landed, he got drunk and naked. Think about Abraham, the friend of God, the father of Israel, didn't trust God enough to wait for a legitimate son. Think about Moses. He led God's people out of Egypt, but was forbidden to enter the promised land because of his disobedience. Even David, the great mighty king, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. Why does the Bible display all their dirty laundry for us to read about? Because we need to understand that every person is a sinner in need of a savior. Every single one of us, no matter how noble we may appear, is a rebel without hope, alienated from God. That's theme number one in the Old Testament. Here's the second theme that runs through the entire Old Testament. It is that God will send a Savior. Though we are sinners with no hope, there is hope. His name is Jesus. You say, Danny, we get that from the Old Testament? Yes. From the moment mankind fell into sin, God promised a rescuer. The Old Testament describes in great detail this one who would come. He's called the promised seed, the lion of Judah, the son of man, the suffering servant, the Passover lamb. He's called the Messiah, and this is just to name a few of the descriptions of Jesus that saturate the pages of the Old Testament. The entire weight of the Old Testament stands behind the claims of Jesus. Every word is a witness to who he is. Now listen, let me help you put it in greater perspective how scripture is a witness to Jesus. You ready? Jesus is resurrected from the grave. And before he ascends to heaven, he walks for several days with many of his disciples. And in that time, listen to this. This is from Luke 24, 27. Listen to what Jesus does during that time. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Think about that for a moment. He takes the entire Old Testament. It's all they had at that time. He takes the Bible of that day and he says, let me show you how all of it points to me. Very scripture that they had studied and invested their life on pointed to Jesus, yet they missed it. You say, Danny, why didn't Jesus walk through all of that with those people right then? Wouldn't that have proved his authority? Wouldn't that have proved his authenticity? Wouldn't that have given value to him that nothing else could do? Maybe. Well, then why didn't he do it? Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. Watch this. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he not waste time talking about his authority and all things? Why would he not go through the scripture like he did with those early disciples at the end of the gospel of Luke? Why not do that here? Here's why. He knew no matter what he said, no matter what he would do, they would never trust him. The word know means to fully know something, to perfectly understand. It's the same word that John uses back in chapter two when it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to people because he knew what was in them. He knew. He knew. They didn't have the love of God in them. As a matter of fact, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter three, verse nineteen. And this is the judgment: the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus knew that there would be plenty that would rather be in the darkness than to ever follow him. They wanted their own glory, not God's glory. As a matter of fact, here's what he would say later in John chapter 12, verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Friends, we have the greatest resource at our disposal every day, all day. How often do we read its pages? How often do we trust in the one that scripture points to? The Bible is a witness to Jesus. Do we allow it to to shape us into people that seek God's glory above our own. Watch this. There's a final witness, Jesus proving his authenticity, right? He's already claimed his authority. We know it. Now he's proving his authenticity. How? Not as a witness to himself, but with five witnesses. We've seen God the Father. We've seen John the Baptist. We've seen his works that speak for themselves. We've went through the scriptures and how they all point to Jesus. There's one more. The fifth witness is Moses. Look at this in verse 45 of John chapter five. Look back at it. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Watch this, on whom you have set your hope. They built their life on the teachings of Moses. They built their religious system on what Moses wrote and put into place. Everything they had, this was the father of their religion. Their hope was in him. And Jesus says, he's the one who will accuse you for if you believed in Moses you would believe me for he wrote of me you say Danny what do you mean he wrote of me listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 you ready the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen this is just one reference of moses pointing ahead toward Jesus. Yet even in all their study of the one that they followed, they still missed Jesus. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But look at this, this whole thing has been like Jesus is on a trial. This whole thing is like Jesus is bringing witnesses to the stand to testify to how authentic he is. The one that God has sent, he has all authority, he has all of authenticity, he is the Messiah that has come. All it's been about him being on trial. But look at this. Moses, on whom you have set your hope, that is the one who accuses you. Do you catch this? The whole thing is Jesus proving who he is. And then right at the end, he flips the script. Right at the end, it's no longer Jesus who is on trial. It's them. Right at the end, it's no more about, listen, You don't have to question anymore about who I am. The questioning now needs to turn to you. Think about that, friends. As Jesus proclaims who he is to these who first went against him, as he claims these witnesses that take the stand to prove his authority, to prove his authenticity, as he goes through everything that we need to know who he is and what he says about himself, to trust in him. After he goes through it all, he says, listen, There will be an accuser and he will accuse you because you have not decided to trust in me. Think about that for a moment. What if the script is flipped on you today? What if Jesus is saying, Hey, friend, you're on trial for a moment? Not me, you. And here's what I want you to think about A, do you trust in me? Because I am real, I am who I say I am. I will do what I say I will do. I'm the one that the Lord has promised. I'm the one that you should put your faith in. Do you believe in me? If it's flipped on you and you're the one on the stand and you're the one being tried, do you know Jesus or not? The question be presented to you. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Listen, friend, if you're here this morning, you say, Danny, I haven't. I know what the Bible says about Jesus. I really do believe in God. I know that he's real. But Danny, I've never placed my faith in Jesus. I've never surrendered to him. Well, then friend, listen to me. As you were on that stand this morning, why not surrender to Jesus? Why not give your life to him? You know he died for your sin. You know he's the only way to heaven. You know that eternal life, abundant life now, comes through Jesus. Why wait? Why not give your life to him? Listen, in just a moment, I'm gonna pray, then I'm gonna be in that lobby, and I'll have my Bible. And if you say, Danny, that's me. I got some questions. I need to know where I stand. I need to know if my life is in Christ. I don't know if I've ever trusted him. I don't know if I've ever given him my life. If that's you, friend, listen, you come find me in that lobby. I'll take my Bible and I will show you how you can begin following Jesus today. If the script is flipped and you're on trial, do you know Jesus? Now listen, if you're here and you do know him, still, if the script is flipped, and you're the one on trial, if you know all of this, and if you believe in Jesus, and you're a follower of him, why doesn't it look like it tomorrow? Ouch. If you know all these things, the question for you is, do you live as Jesus desires for you to live? What if the inspection today is on you? What if Jesus is looking at your life? What if Jesus is asking you to look at yourself and, and see where you stand in your relationship with him? What will that look like this morning? Listen, here's what I know. When God's word is preached, it demands a response from us. And as I studied this word, here's all I could think about. A, if I was on trial, would I be found guilty or would I be pardoned? Listen, there's only one way to be pardoned and that's through Jesus. And so here's what I know, I'd be pardoned, I know him. But then when Jesus said, well, what have you been doing for me? Right, little different question. Then my friends, I've got a whole lot of explaining to do. What about you? Where do you fit in that equation? What is it that the Lord's showing you? He got put on trial, we know what happened. Well, now that he has, He's asked us to make a decision. Will we follow him or not?